Hey, welcome everyone to another episode of the Going VC podcast. I'm JJ. And I'm Rachel, and we're super excited to bring you all this episode, focusing on startup boards. As a quick reminder, our goal of this podcast, as always, is to discuss a variety of topics as it relates to launching or accelerating your venture capital career. Our guests today are Brad Feld and Matt Bloomberg. Both are prolific writers in the greater startup and VC space, with many years of experience as founders and as members of startup boards. Brad is currently the managing director of Foundry Group, and Matt is currently the CEO of Bolster, an on-demand executive talent marketplace that helps accelerate companies' growth by connecting them with experienced, highly vetted executives for interim, fractional, advisory, project-based, or board roles. Today's episode centers around the recently released second edition of the book, Startup Boards, a field guide to building and leading an effective board of directors, which was co-authored by Matt, Brad, and Mahindra Ramsingani. This is a pretty fantastic episode, and especially for anyone interested in learning about the importance of a board of directors, how and where they can help a company, as well as how junior investors can develop the skill set required to be an effective director. Brad and Matt, thank you for joining us today. For everyone listening at home today, we have Matt Blumberg and Brad Feld, authors of Startup Boards, Getting the Most Out of Your Board of Directors. I know you guys are both pretty well-known and pretty prolific writers, but for anyone listening at home who's not familiar with who you are, can we start out with maybe you know the 30-second origin story and sort of your background on how you got to where you are today? Why don't we start with Matt, just because he's on the, uh, the left side of my screen. Sure. Matt Blumberg, I'm multi-time tech founder and entrepreneur have done a bunch of things in that regard that are related to boards and VCs from the from the side of being an operator. So I've scaled two businesses over time. I'm running a startup now. I've been on lots of different boards and built lots of different boards as a leader of organizations. I've served on a lot of other boards, corporate, public, private, nonprofit, et cetera, and many with Brad. I think Brad and I concluded the other day, we've been on four boards together. Part of our job at Bolster, which is my new company, is helping startup CEOs, founders, and VCs hire senior talent for organizations, whether that's a full-time executive, a part-time executive, a coach, or an independent board member. So we actually work now with many, many startups to help them find and hire really talented independent directors. I think we've done 30 or 40 of those searches in the last couple of years. Then finally, one of the things that Bolster has is a venture fund called Bolster Ventures. So I'm actually now on the venture side as well as the operator side, although we don't take board seats and we don't lead financings. So we're a little bit different than, than certainly Brad and his experience set on that side, but we do have the little bit of the investor side as well. Awesome. Awesome. And Brad, what about yourself? Could you introduce yourself to the listeners? I'm a partner at a venture fund called Foundry. We're based in Boulder. We invest all around the U.S., and about 25% of our capital is invested in early stage seed and pre-seed venture funds. And 75% of our capital, we invest in companies, usually at the Series A, occasionally at the sort of early growth, what would be classically called a Series a series C, Series D type financing. I'm also a co-founder of Techstars, which is a global accelerator and also a very large investment fund. 
We invest in about 500 companies a year at the pre-seed stage all around the world. I think we've got about 3,000 active portfolio companies, maybe a little bit more now, given the most recent accelerator fund cycle there. I've been doing venture capital going back to 1996. Prior to that, I was an entrepreneur. I had a company that I sold to a public company and was a CTO of the public company. And then prior to being a VC, I was an angel investor and made during a two-year period or almost three-year period, about 40 investments in the 1990s. So I've been investing and serving on boards for a long time. Matt and I have worked together going back to 2000. I was a a relatively early board member of his prior company before Bolster, a company called Return Path, and was on that board for about 19 years, which is in some ways a long time and in some ways not a long time from venture landscape, but a lot of experience there together. I don't know the number of boards I've been on in total, but I've been on many. I've been on some outstanding and well-performing boards, and I put Matt's in that category for much of the life of the company, although there was a couple of year period where I think his board was extraordinarily dysfunctional. And then I've been on some horrific boards that were a complete debacle and were destructive to the companies themselves and plenty in between. That makes sense. Well, maybe if we have time, we'll dig into that. To set the stage here, and of course, and for the listeners at home, the book covers these in far more detail than we'll be able to touch on today. But we'll just sort of set the stage and go through what is a board? And particularly for an early stage company, how does this differ from a set of advisors? And when should a startup go about forming a formal legal board of directors? I'm happy to start. So companies have to have a board the minute they're a company. You know, frequently the board is one person and it's the founder or, you know, two founders or or whatnot. You know, companies can always have advisors. That's a relatively loose term that means lots of things to lots of different people. A board has has a legal meaning. It has, you know, certainly a sort of a higher bar associated with someone making the commitment to be on it. And, you know, generally I from a practical perspective, I've never thought of advisors as being like my inner circle, my cabinet as a CEO. And I do think about my board as being part of the inner circle that governs the company and, and is a strategic advisory board, very different than, than kind of one-off advisors or, or even an advisory board. So you, know, you have one legally from the beginning, but I think it's really important for founders to take the concept of a board seriously from day one and to build it thoughtfully from day one. You know, Even before you have venture investors, you can put independence directors on your board so it's not just founders. And, you know, I, I always say, and lots of, lots of CEOs say, you kind of have two teams in life. You have your management team and you have your board, and you would never be so casual with your management team. Ah, maybe I'll skip putting people on it for now. And, and you, shouldn't, you shouldn't do that with your board either. You should take advantage of the, of the opportunity to bring talent in to your organization in, in a different way. That makes a lot of sense and actually leads into the next question we've got here. In the book, you talk about your rule of one around building a balanced board. For every one member of a management team on the board, typically starting out with a CEO, should have one investor director and one independent director. Would be great if you could expand on this a little bit and maybe as sort of relevant to our audience, how do VCs typically perceive this rule? You know, there's sort of two parts of the rule of one. One is I'm a believer in, in really only having one founder or one member of the management team on the board. Brad has a different perspective on that, or at least a, a more nuanced one. I think there are circumstances where having multiple founders on a board or a founder plus a hired in CEO can make sense. But but generally, you know, I, I'd like to see boards with one member of the management team on them because you have a limited number of slots and it's generally better to fill them with people who aren't already working in the business. And then the other part of the rule of one is for every investor on the board, add an independent. Of course, you could have independence before you have investors, 
on the board, but independents are very valuable. They play a really unique role in boards. Stacking a board with VCs, there's so many companies I see where we're doing board searches where the board is like two founders and three VCs or a founder and four VCs and no independent voice, that that's a real missed opportunity. Digging into that a little more, the importance of that that outsider, that independent director was something that you emphasized in the book a lot. So yeah, we'd love it if you sort of dig into why that's the case and, and what value does an outside director bring? Let me start that with giving some nuance on Matt's answer, because I think Matt's rule of one is a great heuristic. But as Matt mentioned, there's some nuance. And there's also some characteristics, I think, especially of founders and of VCs that wouldn't immediately respond with like, oh, yeah, that makes sense to the rule of one and it requires some additional thought. Let me start with those things. And really, it's the issue of control. A lot of times, founders view the board as the key point of control of the company and as a result, or a key point of control, and as a result, are very uncomfortable with the idea that they might not be a majority of the board. And you especially see this in early stage companies. You also have a number of people who philosophically view the board as something that eh, it's not really a thing until later in the life of the company. And so you don't really have to take it seriously early on. And so therefore, and I think those are both really... Those are perspectives that miss the point of the potential value of a board to the company, which we'll start to talk about in a minute. And in the context of that, the control dynamics really are not around the board. There is often one thing in the board dynamic where there is a very explicit control dynamic, which is whether or not the board supports the CEO of the company. And in situations where the board doesn't support the CEO or where multiple members of the board don't support the CEO... In a lot of ways, that's the key governance dynamic for the board in terms of the operations of the company. The board has other governance dynamics and responsibilities. But in that one, that's the thing I think a lot of times entrepreneurs especially get hung up with, which is I don't want the investors to be able to fire me. And then the flip side of it is the investors get hung up in this notion of, well, if we don't have control over the board, then the entrepreneurs can just do whatever they want. So I've now invested money and now the founders can decide, well, you know, we want to go, for example, put a bunch of our cash in crypto because, you know, crypto is going to go up forever and always going to be more valuable. And, you know, if we control the board, then we can just do that. Even if the investors think that we should be putting the cash that they just gave us to build the company in, you know, money market in extremely large banks where the risk of losing a penny is non-existent. So you end up in this kind of space where people get hung up on that versus looking at the board as another team that can help the CEO build a successful company. And in that, be explicit, whether it's in the investment agreements or in the role and relationship between participants around any control issues that people are concerned about either direction. And frankly, a fulsome board, a real board helps make those issues in a lot of ways, non-issues because it does generate better disclosure, better communication. If the team of the board is a highly functioning team that's working on a bunch of stuff together to help support the CEO and make the CEO successful, things flow from there. One last comment on that. There's a lot of situations where you'll have two or three founders on the board early, again, essentially because of how you can form a board. I think it's really healthy over time for the board to have less founders on it. 
I think if there's a non-founder CEO, there's always a reasonable argument for a founder to stay on the board. If you've brought in a non-founder CEO, the CEO should Mm -hmm. always have a board seat. And in situations where you have multiple founders on the board, especially where there's reporting relationships, where one of the founders reports to the other, as the company becomes more mature, it makes more sense to try to limit that to one founder on the board rather than multiple. So There is an evolution versus absolute rules, but I'm going to tie it back to the thing I started with, which is this notion of building a really effective team that is the board and the idea that that effective team includes independent directors. I'll use that to hand it off to Matt to say, tell us, you know, Matt's done a great job historically with independent directors. How have you done it and why have you done it? Other than your VCs are knuckleheads and you want more independent directors on your board. My VCs are great. I wish I had more of them sometimes. <laughs> but I think VCs add a tremendous perspective to boards. There's no question about it. You know, they say, I, I think when Brad joined my board at Return Path, he had probably already been on 150 boards or 100 boards, right? He'd been deeply involved with many, many, many companies. So you get a perspective from investors that's not just about investors and financing and the like, but you know, just this broad view of the world and what's happening in the world and what's happened in the world. And you get pattern matching that's, that's just tremendous. What you don't typically get is the expertise of an operator and the experience of an operator. And even VCs like Brad, Brad is, himself is a great example. Right? He was an entrepreneur before he became a VC. So it's not that he, and he works with CEOs, right? So it's not that he's missing that perspective. It's just not his go-to perspective on things. His go-to perspective is what he does every day, what he's done every day for the last 20 or 30 years. So the perspective of having operators on your board who have some experience with some business kind of like yours in one way or another is very, very valuable. And the way I like to sort of coach CEOs as they're thinking about doing a board search in terms of, you know, kind of what do I want? is to think, again, let's come back to the metaphor of the team. Think about the board as a team. What kind of team are you trying to build between your management team and your board? And what role or roles are missing? And there's no right answer to the first question, what team are you trying to build? What kind of team? There are lots of kinds of teams out there. And I mean, think about the model of I'm going to mix a metaphor here, right? So a basketball team is really different from a baseball team in the world of sports, right? A basketball team, like there are specialized positions, but everyone has to be able to do everything all the time, right? Everyone has to be able to guard, shoot, pass, dribble, rebound. And then there's some specialized roles. Baseball is really different, right? You can try to take a catcher and put them on the mound and make up a pitcher. And that person probably pitched in little league, but they can't really play that, that position the same way. And so an extreme end of that, again, to mix the metaphor is a surgical team. You don't want your anesthesiologist cutting you open, right? Just because that person's on the surgical team. So every business is different. I encourage CEOs to think really strategically about what type of team they're trying to build. And then what's the role that's missing from the team? Are you the surgical team with no anesthesiologist at the moment Then we have to go find you an anesthesiologist? And if you translate this back to the world of startups, you know, sort of four things that we ask CEOs to think about in terms of what's missing from the team are functional experience, industry or domain experience, stage and stage transition experience, and customer set experience. So all four could be important. We always ask our clients to stack rank them, think about each one, and then, you know, what's the most important, the next most important. Do you need someone from your industry to open doors for you or that knows the landscape of players? Fine. That's one thing. Functional could be really important. If no one around the table is financial, 
And you know, maybe you have investors who are new investors, they used to be operators, you're looking for an audit committee chair, whatever it is, then you have to find a functionally competent person to join your board who's been a CFO probably. If you've never been a CEO before, you might feel compelled to put a CEO on your board so you have that voice. Maybe your board and your management team are missing go-to-market muscle and you want to put someone on the board that has that function. So that function can be important. Stage and stage transition is pretty important. You know, if you're a raw startup, putting a Fortune 500 person on the board might not make sense. And finally, customer set experience is, is can be very useful as well. So if you're an enterprise software company, hiring someone that has only ever sold direct to consumers might not make sense, but it might if that's the fourth most important thing and you get the other three things right. So it's all about that, you know, sort of balance of the different types of competencies and what's missing from the team at a given moment. That makes a lot of sense. And with this, Rachel, I'm going to turn it over to you to dig in a little more. Yeah, thank you both for elaborating really what to look for in building your board. I think an interesting follow-on question here is there's there's a chapter of the book called Size and Composition, and it touches on how there's a limit to how many investors should be on a board. And it cites a correlation venture study that companies with more than three investor board members performed worse than those with three or fewer. So Matt, to your point, you were talking about how you know VCs can sometimes lack that operator experience that's really helpful on a board. Curious to hear your all's thoughts on why else that might be the case. Is it really kind of that lack of experience? Could there be some sort of incentive alignment issue? Or do you all have any other thoughts on you know why having too many VCs could be bad? From my own experience, the problem when you have too many VCs on the board fits into a couple of categories. One is if you have too many VCs on the board, by definition, you probably don't have enough independent voices, independent directors on the board. So you tend to be overweight the VC voice versus the independent director voice. So you don't get the benefit of that. Next, one of the things that's challenging VCs in general is they're not a singular archetype. A long time ago, and challenging, not bad challenging, just challenging for people to process. A long time ago, I wrote a blog post that said VCs are like Dungeons and Dragons characters. And I was just trying to make the point that each individual VC has different strengths and weaknesses, and they have different superpowers. And a lot of times people generalize those skills to the firm they're part of. It's not the, to the firm, it's to the individual VC. Yeah, firms all have cultures and they have norms and they have lots of things that you know the VCs and the firm share, but the individual VCs still have their own personal strengths and weaknesses because they tend to be like all of us, their own person. They've got their own, their own skill set. So I think a lot of times when you have too many VCs on the board, you aren't in a position where you can actually get focus on what those individual strengths are because the entrepreneur often thinks of this collection when in fact it's this chaotic mix. And so if you lined up the different skill sets that you have, the VCs aren't ones you're choosing like independent directors. They're ones that are being imposed on you by the VC who has invested. And so you're ending up with those that collection versus choosing and building a team that works. So those are sort of simple starting points. The next, many VCs prognosticate. And the challenge with prognostication, and I think it's been made worse by what many refer to as VC Twitter, or just the extraordinary number of VCs who bloviate on Twitter all day long, is that the critical thinking that an individual board member needs to do is in the context of the company, prognosticating from a general perspective, while useful as data, is completely not useful as direction. 
And so what you end up in a lot of cases is you end up with platitudes, prognostications versus critical thinking in the context of the company and then the ability to go deeper on what the issue is. And this varies the spectrum. Again, some VCs are extraordinarily good at not prognosticating and generalizing and understanding what's going on. A lot of VCs are extraordinarily bad at that, and they're, most of them are in the middle somewhere. So the more you have, the more compounding that effect is. The last is you really don't ever want your board members to be running the company or directing the leadership team or the CEO as to what to do. You want them to be providing data. And my own experience, the more VCs you have on the board, the more the CEO feels the need to accommodate what those VCs are telling the person to do, even if the VCs mean to be suggesting it. And so with VC-heavy boards, you tend to end up in a very different kind of conversation than when you're on boards that are pretty balanced between VCs, founders, and outside board members. Matt, I don't know if you have other things to add to that. You know, I just think it's about the balance. Like, you'd never have a management team with four heads of sales. I mean, it's obviously different, but to be cheeky about it. And, you know, Brad, to, to channel your earlier story, the years where the return path board were the least functional were the years where it had the greatest number of investors on it. And I don't know, you look, the problem with correlations is they're not causation. So it's a little hard to note one thing or other. I think frequently companies that have a great number of investors on their board have had some problem in their past that have had them layer in more investors and more rounds. And that could cause the challenges too. It's also worth noting, and that made me think of something, and I'm I'm guilty of this too. I think this is just human nature. It's one thing to extrapolate from your own experience. It's another thing in how you present that extrapolation. So, you know, the cliche, you know, the person's solution, everything's a nail, the person's solution is to everything is a hammer is something that does tend to happen, I think in general, but more specifically with VC board members who have had a success or a failure that's very significant, right? You have your very significant success. So then you end up having that be, you're trying to repeat it with lots of other companies and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, or you have a very significant failure and you tend to repeat it. And the VC language for that is pattern matching. There's a bunch of phrases and words that I think should be eliminated from the entrepreneurial lexicon. One of them is meritocracy. I think the word meritocracy is complete and total bullshit in the context of our society. Another one, by the way, is culture fit. I think culture fit is a terrible phrase. I think the phrase that should replace it is culture add. And instead of talking about culture, we should talk about cultural norms within companies, like long conversations about each of those things. But another one would be this sort of notion of pattern matching, where I think in the VC industry, there's incredible pride around the notion we have all this experience. And so we're good pattern matchers against the backdrop of the whole premise of VC investing and entrepreneurship is to be disruptive of things that have happened in the past. Now, that's not to say that the lessons that you've learned and the patterns that you see are not useful, but the pattern matching tends to be not helpful, especially in situations where companies find themselves dealing with new things or in unique situations. There are plenty, 80, 90% of the things that a startup goes through those patterns apply to. And so there's a lot of value in that expertise, but it's not as directive. It's as from my experience, when we did this, this fucked up and here's why. Or from my experience, this worked really well. And the CEO might look at it and say, huh, okay, 
I think we're in a different situation because you investor are not living inside the problem that I'm living inside. So thank you for the data. And I'm going to go make this decision. When you have too many VCs on the board that have seen the same patterns, you tend to get this, this is what you should do, because if you don't do this, then this will happen. The worst part of that, by the way, and I try not to ever do this, but I do it sometimes because it's just gratuitous and I can't help myself, is when the CEO decides to do something different, and that's fine because you should support. I love the you know disagree, commit language that Jeff Bezos made so popular. And then the thing, and I said, well, that's not going to work. And all right, I, you guys are going to make your own decision. Then it doesn't work. It's not so helpful to say, I told you so, or you know, that whatever the gratuitous equivalent of it is. The better thing to do is to say, what do we learn from this? And I think the challenge when you have, I think, too many investors on the board is that those kinds of things get lost versus when you have other operators and independent directors on the board, when those things happen, there's more the natural tendency to try to learn from what just happened. That makes a lot of sense. And it's actually kind of interesting to your point there. Most VCs are looking to invest in companies that are going to deliver those home run returns and reinvent industries. And you can't really reinvent the wheel just doing the same thing over and over again. But Rachel, I'll turn it back over to you. But I just wanted to jump in for one question. We used to actually ask our guests what their investing superpower is. And we've not actually asked it for a while. But that phrase came up. So I thought I'd turn it over to both of you. And yeah, what are your investing superpowers? I think Matt should answer what he thinks my superpower is, and I'll answer what I think Matt's superpower is. Nice. Let's do it. Matt, go for it. Huh. I'll answer you if you don't have mine off top of your head. There's so many, Brad. I don't know where to start. You have to pick one. Yeah. I think Matt's superpower, he's extraordinary at working with a team of extremely talented people and bringing out of that team without being passive, you know, in the background, being a leader, but bringing out of that team, continual critical thinking, organizing it in a way where people individually can really execute, and then giving them the room and space to execute while still holding them accountable. Matt, I don't know what the language you use now for the management. You have some acronym that you're using this time around for the way that you manage. I can't remember what it is, but it's such a good acronym. Maybe just explain it because it'll underscore what I just said. Yeah. So we call our form of government at Bolster a NISMO, a mostly self-managed organization. I assume that's what you're... Yeah, that's exactly what I'm referring to. If you look at the individual people that are on Matt's leadership team, most of them could be a CEO. And most of them are very self managing of their functional responsibility, but also very good at the cross-functional activity. And Matt is very good at engaging and supporting that versus having to manage on top of it. And that's pretty unique in my own experience. And it came from, I mean, I I saw that evolve at Return Path when Matt started at you know, Return Path or when I started working with him in 2000. That was not, by no means, was that anywhere where it is today. So it's been a skill that he's really developed strongly over time. Well, that's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. I will take that as a compliment. And it is true. Most of the people on our leadership team could be CEOs. And our system has produced a lot of CEOs over the years. So a lot of people that used to be on the management team over the years, you know, running other companies, which is always great to see. When I think about Brad's superpowers, I think the phrase that automatically jumps to mind is no bullshit. And, you know, to his point earlier, lots of VCs spend a lot of time in board meetings speaking and prognosticating and pontificating and frequently saying nothing. We're saying 
this much, but packaging it in, in a monologue. And what I've always sort of found and appreciated about Brad in a boardroom is like, it's just no bullshit. He says what's on his mind. He says it thoughtfully though, right? He doesn't have knee-jerk reactions to things. He says it in a way that is plain spoken and easy to understand. He doesn't say it in a way that makes other people feel dumb for having a different point of view. And he's also willing to engage in discussion around it. He doesn't drop it and drop the mic and walk out of the room. Well, I have spoken. So I've been very fortunate in my career to work with several extraordinary investor directors. Brad is one of them. But I've seen from other boards I've been on a perhaps wider range of quality of director. Well, those both sound like pretty fantastic superpowers. Rachel, back over to you. I need to get my no bullshit t-shirt made, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that and your your GTTFP t-shirt. (laughs) <laughs> which you can Google that. If you Google Brad Feld and GTTFP, you will find an entertaining blog post or two. All right. We're definitely going to have to include that in the show notes. Thanks for mentioning it. <laughs> yeah. Love, love both of those superpowers. Matt, that's the first time I've heard of, of Mismo, but I really like it. And Brad, I think, you know, most of our VCs listening or aspiring VCs aspire to be that type of investor board member. So digging a little deeper into investors and board roles, I'm curious to hear your all's thoughts on when you think a VC is ready to be a board member. So say this could be from the perspective of a VC who has moved up in their firm and you know maybe this is their first board role ever. When do you think they're ready to take that role on? I think that step one in the evolution of a VC from, you know, joining a firm and being new to the industry to whatever the titles are, right? Becoming a principal or becoming somebody titled investor to then becoming a partner. The most powerful way to become a board member is to view it as an apprentice model and shadow multiple partners in the firm at board meetings. And You know, most companies have a sort of construct of an observer for VC board members. That's different than what I'm describing. What I'm describing here is if the firm has the opportunity to do that, or if it doesn't, to try to be proactive with one or more partners to show up and sit in the back of the room, not to say a word, just to observe and to do it with board members or partners within the firm that are well-regarded as board members, because sometimes firms, especially larger ones, there's different reputations of partners as board members, but also on boards where there's a variety of board members in the room. So you can just observe the interactions. I start there. I think that shadowing dynamic is often missed. And it's often missed because of the observer dynamic, where then the person feels either they have a formal role in the room as an observer, or they're tagging along with a partner, but responsible for tagging along with the partner for keeping track of things and writing notes and following up after the meeting and whatever. This idea of being able to have experiences where you just observe at different stages and companies that are doing well and companies that are completely off the rails, like getting that in the first couple of years of being a VC Even if you now are sitting on some boards, I encourage that because you learn a lot from showing up and watching. I think that's way underdone. I mean, I think about the board meetings that I'm in, the number of times where that happens, it's one in 20. It's just way too infrequent, maybe even a bigger ratio. So I would encourage that as a thing for a junior person in the VC industry that's trying to learn more. Then next is you'll start to be on boards. And I think when you're on boards, either as an observer or getting assigned a board, the mistake I think a lot of 
rookie board members make is they feel responsible for figuring everything out. And this is especially true. A lot of firms, when you're getting board experience, you get put on boards of companies that are either going nowhere or that are struggling. Sort of the mildly orphaned or abandoned boards are the ones that the junior people get. Not always, but in some cases. And I think in those cases, what's most useful is making sure that you have a partner who knows the deal, senior person who knows the deal, who can help you understand what's going on and can help you navigate through what to do. Not by participating in the board meetings, but by being somebody you can debrief with after, ask questions about, try to understand, because there's a long list of things that'll come up. Even if you've read startup boards and you've shadowed some boards, you're just like, you know, I was on a call today with a very experienced VC who, you know, had not been a VC in a downturn before. And one of the companies they were involved in, just I'll give an example. One of the companies they're involved in was doing a financing that's a recap and it's a 10 to one recap. So if you owned... 10% of the, it's a pay to play, what's called a pay to play. If you own 10% of the company and you don't participate at all in the recap, you now own 1% of the company and you lose all your preference. But if you participate with the amount of money that's going into this new financing, different things happen. And like this investor's immediate two questions were one, is that legal? It was being done by insiders, you know, because they just hadn't had one of those happen to them before as a VC. And the other was, should I consider participating? My default is, Company's kind of gone sideways. It's having some issues, but it's, you know, it's okay. How should I think about this? Again, experienced investor. If you're on your first board, you haven't been investing for a long time, like there's many, many issues that will come up. And making sure that you don't feel the responsibility of taking it all on yourself, but that you've got other people, either peers or other people in your firm that are willing to help you think them through is really key. Yeah. And, you know, I would say from my perspective, I would rather have, yeah, I'd obviously rather have the most experienced person that I can get to be engaged on my board on the VC side. But if I have a more junior person, I'd rather that person periodically say, you know what, I'm not quite sure how to think about this. Let me get back to you and go do some homework or even bring the senior partner that you know, or you sort of know who's on the deal to a conversation about it, then kind of flummox their way around it and not be helpful. That makes a lot of sense there. So many follow-up questions we can ask, but want to be respectful of both your times. So final question we ask everyone is, what is your favorite book that you've read recently? And, you know, a book that you've not written, of course. My favorite book is definitely not Startup Boards, although I <laughs> think it's a fine piece of work for, for many people. I'm happy to answer. I'll do a business book answer because it literally is the last book that I read. And it's a phenomenal book. It is a book called Loved by Martina Lochenko. Martina is an operating partner at Costa Nova Venture Capital, which is one of my other investors and also a partner fund of Brad's. And Martina is a career product marketing professional and probably the strongest product marketer that I've ever met. And it's just a fantastic book that lays out the ins and outs of product marketing, which I think is one of the most misunderstood functions in tech companies. And it's a super accessible book. I think I dog-eared 75 different pages as I was reading it. Nice. And Brad, what about you? I read a lot of books, so I'm going to give you more than one, but I'll give them from a recent run of books that I've just read, which are, I love to read science fiction. So I read a lot of science fiction that ranges in quality. The book I'm reading right now, I would put in the mediocre quality, so I wouldn't recommend it. But I read four in a row that I thought were outstanding. And the four are Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by an author named Gabrielle Zevin. If you 
have any interest in video games or you lived through the 19 late 80s and early 90s and are alive today, it's an extraordinary book. The next book is by Vahini Avara. It's called The Immortal King Rao. King Rao is the name of the protagonist. And the only thing I didn't love about the book was there's a backstory of King Rao's childhood growing up in India. And I found that a little interesting, but over time, a little tedious because it didn't keep the book moving along the way it needed to. But the rest of the book was just extraordinary. And I'll just give a hint. King Rao creates a company called Coconut, which has becomes the most valuable company in the world and the most dominant company in the world. So the obvious analog to Apple, but very different future dynamics that play out. The next one is from a Colorado author who I love. A guy. That one, Brad, is top of my Kindle for my vacation at Greg's suggestion. So. You'll love it. It's spectacular. Be rapid fire in the last two. Blake Crouch, Colorado author, who I love. His most recent book, Upgrade, probably his best book yet. And then another longtime fave of mine in sci-fi is Kim Stanley Robinson. I think it's his last book called The Ministry for the Future. Probably so far the best book I've read this year. Awesome. Love it. Thank you so much. We'll be sure to include all of those books in the show notes. And thank you both so much for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure. Plenty of nuggets of wisdom. We'll be sure to include startup boards in the show notes as well for those of you interested in reading it and really digging deeper into some of the topics we touched on. I encourage everybody interested to take a look. It's really an awesome book. Last and, and final question for you both. What is the best way to keep up with you all and your firms, whether that be through social media or, or blogs or otherwise? Uh, for me, Bolster and Bolster.com is the website. We have a blog there. And then my my blog is StartupCEO.com. And I'm I'm just a Feld.com with my last name. I blog still periodically. I used to blog daily. Now it's sort of whenever I feel like it. But there's tons of old content there. And beyond that, the best way to get in touch with me is brad at feld.com just by email. I pay no attention to Twitter. I actually learned a wonderful Twitter trick, which is I follow zero people. So there is no reason for me to get sucked into it. I do tweet periodically. And whenever I write a blog post, it shows up. So at bfeld is my Twitter handle, but not a great way to get in touch with me. Got it. Awesome. Thank you both so much again for your time. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter for more venture capital research by visiting goingvc.com. And consider giving us a gift by rating us and sharing the podcast with a friend.